This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Maiden in the Tower, tracing the origins of Rapunzel. So this is our uh, first fairy tales in focus episode of 2023 yes for those of you who are just tuning in uh jules and i have been doing uh this sort of mini series as part of dissecting dragons which is the fairy tales in focus um where we discuss various fairy tales and have a look a a real deep dive into them um and uh, we, we're, this week we're going to be bringing you one of the best known and yet one of the most idiosyncratic fairy tales um, in the West. Um, and that is, of course, Rapunzel. Yeah. And, you know, when we get into it in a minute, it, it really does have some very strange elements in which bear a closer look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's the one where there are some of the greatest variations between um specific uh documented written examples as well so we'll also get into that yeah now over the time uh it has inspired countless adaptations reimaginings and of course uh classic works of literature as well as less classic works of literature <laughs> yes very definitely yeah um and we will go into those but before we do as jules said let's dive into its origins which will take us to some strange and somewhat unusual places yeah um before we get into that just a very very quick recap on what we mean by fairy tales um if you've listened to any of these fairy tale and focus episodes before if you want to skip this bit that's fine because we're essentially saying the same thing but if it's your first one um basically fairy tales morality tales fables myths and legends all get jumbled together and it's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world and what's a fairy tale in one place might be a legend in another yeah Now, broadly speaking, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. Uh, Whereas morality tales, fables and parables are... Parables? Parables? (laughs) Parables! Parables are concerned with delivering a message, which is usually religious or philosophical. Yeah, whereas fairy tales are generally accepted to contain fantasy creatures. Um, So... Dwarves, as in a fantasy creature, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, etc. And they do not contain more than superficial references to religion, actual places, historical people or events. Uh, they happened once upon a time or a long time ago. Um, the, the only thing I will say is the ones that do concern themselves with a slight religious undertone mm-hmm. uh, treat God just as if he was another fantasy creature, which I always find quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we should also say that some folklorists actually prefer the term Martian, uh, which means wonder tale instead of fairy tale. Yeah. Um, while we're familiar with fairy tales as they have been preserved, written down, and while this can make it tricky to get at the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively male, or at least very rich, 
Uh, fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that and were most likely handed down from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. Um, there's also an entire body of like hunt law where there's stories of generally male hunters, fathers talking to their sons on hunt campaigns, etc. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they belong to everyone. But another name for fairy tales is spinning tales, because obviously spinning is quite tedious work. And how do you keep people going with something that's tedious? Well, you tell stories. Yeah. Now, the nature of a story is, of course, to shapeshift to survive. And fairy tales subsequently have been shapeshifting for a very, very long time. So that means that as we delve into them, we are going to find all sorts of strange bits and bobs, but we are also not going to be able to actually give exact and precise answers about everything because we just don't have the records for it. Um, and the reality is that a lot of these stories are even older or have older elements than we actually know. Yeah, they go back far further than we can actually even trace. So yeah. we will do our best. We've obviously researched this. <laughs> so we'll see how we go. Um, okay, let's start off with Rapunzel, a brief history of the story as we know it. Yeah. So the version which is best known um, in the West nowadays is the version that was written down by the Brothers Grimm um, and was included in their collection um, Hausmärchen. Uh, both the first edition, which was published in 1812, and then the seventh edition, which was published in 1857. We will talk more about that later, however. Yeah. Um, Rapunzel is classified as an Arne Thompson folk index type 310, the maiden in the tower. So if you're unaware of this, the Arne, Arne Thompson and actually their wives and a bunch of their wives, female friends, who were big folklorists, got together and classified thousands and thousands and thousands of folk stories which has provided a really useful folk index and if you're a complete nerd and you like to spend your Sundays doing something really really weird and in, in, in sort of immersive um, in terms of delving into folklore then you might like to look at the Arne Thompson folk index because I find it fascinating. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and again we do have to emphasize this is if you're a nerd. If you're a nerd, um, yeah. <laughs> I make no apologies. <laughs> one of us, one, one of, of us. <laughs> now, uh, certainly the fairy tale in its current fixed form has a comparatively short history, being only about 586 years old. Um, and yes, uh, that is short for a written, written record of a fairy tale. Um, again, we have to consider the earliest records of Cinderella, you know, that dates back to over 2000 years. So, um, you know, 600 years is actually quite, it's, it's quite young. It's <laughs> young whippersnapper. Um, <laughs> However, Rapunzel takes its inspiration from some pretty interesting sources, so let's take a look at those. Yeah, now there are more sources than I've been able to sort of write down, or rather it would be a series of podcasts. Let us know if you yeah. want that, guys, by the way. Um, <laughs> just literally on this one thing. Um, but basically, um, there's, there's one that I, that there is one source that I haven't considered because it's not very well substantiated, but I will mention it at the end. But first yeah. of all, um, in ancient Greek mythology, Danae was imprisoned by her father, King Acrisius of Argos, in the Tower of Bronze, 
Um, this tower was without doors or windows and had only a high skylight to let in light and air so that she would never know a man or have a child. There's also a, like a subtext in this particular myth, depending on which translation you're reading, which suggests that the very, very beautiful Danai was actually desired by her father as well. So there may have been a jealousy component. So that's yeah. all very yuck. Um, <laughs> but basically, the main reason was the Oracle of Delphi had predicted that Danai's son would kill his grandfather. Now, Zeus, being the, <laughs> the great being egalitarian Zeus. god that he was... <laughs> saw the beautiful Danai in her distress and loneliness and thought her completely desirable. So he appeared to her as a shower of gold and in due course she became pregnant with the Greek hero Perseus. It's one of the strangest impregnation stories and you know that's really saying something with Zeus who also impregnated a woman whilst being a swan and various other animals. Uh, so yeah, a shower of gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um Enraged but unwilling to offend Zeus by directly murdering his unborn child or the fates by killing his own offspring. The fates did not like it when you murdered your children. Nope. Um, Acrisius had his pregnant daughter locked in a large wooden chest, which was then sent out to sea beyond the seventh wave. So it wasn't a direct murder. Um, it was basically leaving her fate up to the gods. Although if you put someone in a wooden chest and send them out to sea, chances are the chest will sink at a certain point and the person will drown. So yeah. you think the problem's taken care of, but no. Um, Zeus would not have Danai and her child harmed, so he persuaded his brother Poseidon to guide the chest safely across the sea to the island of Seraphos. Um Danai was then taken in by the brother of King Polydectes. I, I want to say, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the brother, but it's gone out of my head, but I'm sure we can find it. Yeah. Um, we know that Perseus then grew up and had the sort of adventures you'd expect of a Greek hero. Eventually, he won the hand of Princess Andromeda and started for Argos, his kingdom. On the way, he heard the legend, He sorry, he heard the prophecy and was sidetracked by some enticing Olympic games, which he could compete in at uh, Larissa, unbeknownst to, to either Perseus or Acrisius. Um, Acrisius was there, he was quite old by this point, um, and he wasn't competing, but he was there, sort of, you know, all, all able-bodied men turned up at the Olympic Games, and it was one where, um, you know, any one of any, any class could compete together, you were equal on the field of the gods, basically. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Perseus was there, kind of like being the fine figure of manhood he was. He took part, um, and <laughs> he accidentally killed his grandfather when his discus or javelin went awry on a throw, yeah. which is quite an ignominious way to fulfil a prophecy. Yeah. Um, if you ever listen to the uh, the Stephen Fry version of this myth, it's very funny because uh, <laughs> Perseus runs over <laughs> to. <laughs> um, Acrisius and he's like I'm so sorry and Acrisius is like haha it's okay I wasn't killed by my grandson and then Perseus is like oh, oh um, <laughs> um <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bad news um, but yeah um, the, the part we're focusing on is obviously the fact that the Acrisius's response to your grandson will kill you is to lock up his daughter Danai in a tower 
and that's a common motif that turns up in many other myths myths and we've got some other examples as well yeah um one little aside also about danai she's also you might know her as dany as well um some people who might know some of the other stories is that she also attracted the attention of uh polydectes the king um which again has some similarities to rapunzel in terms of being locked away by one by one power um only to be lusted after by another um and in attempting to sort of trick his way into her heart and into her household and to get rid of the opposition um to this which is namely perseus um uh, the the sort of the the prince in Rapunzel obviously uh, ends up getting being blinded and tricked, and uh, Polydectes uh, also ends up not faring that great <laughs> because of Perseus. Yeah. So there are other parallels as well. Um, of course, it's not the only one, um, and we also see sort of elements of it in Irish tradition. Yeah. Um... This is a, there's variations of this story. So I've picked the one I'm most familiar with. And obviously it's got bigger parallels with it. Um, it's part of, a. I think the only thing is when you start delving into Irish tradition or, or Norse tradition or whatever, it's part of a huge saga or Persian tradition. Yeah. Um, so it sometimes it doesn't make sense outside the context of the entire saga, but we obviously don't have time to go into the entire saga. So um, <laughs> this, this is the story kind of potted a little bit. But basically, Evni is the daughter of the Favori chieftain Balor of the Fearsome Eye, you know, the one with the extra eye that sort of burns everything. Yeah, it like, <laughs> just goes, bah, and it literally just... <laughs> yeah, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of... at the t- This is part of the, the Laura Gabler era where, you know, the Book of the Taking of Ireland, where um, you have the Tuatha de Danann and the Favori were kind of at odds with each other, but there was a brief time when they were both living in Ireland at the same time, and mm. um, neither was very fond of the other. Uh, and uh, Balor was kind of a monster. He was supposed to be a huge giant with a third eye. Um, its lid was sealed shut and had to be raised by servants, I believe. Yeah. Um, and when it did, it his dread gaze would fall on things and blight crops and and what have you. It was um, no, it's all very sort of anime actually. Yeah, it was very <laughs> it was very literal eye of Sauron almost kind of thing. But you know, instead of just being seen, you would be sort of obliterated. Yeah. Um. Anyway, sorry. Getting back to the point, a druidic prophecy stated that Balor would be killed by his own grandson. So Balor imprisons his daughter Ethne in a tower on Tory Island. Um, not to be confused with a political party. <laughs> Can <you> Obviously, imagine? <laughs> that would just be a fate worse than death, wouldn't it? Just, no, just kill me. It's fine. Um, at which point, Balor relaxed a little bit, but he has disregarded the 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 fact that he has given great offence elsewhere. Kyan of the Tuathadanan. Um, is a man from whom Balor stole a particular magical cow. Now, just like with the Scots, amongst the the ancient Irish, cow stealing, cow rustling was a, an honoured tradition. That's what kind of what you did, um, and things sometimes and often did get out of hand. But stealing somebody's magic cow was right out. Okay, that wasn't cool. <laughs> um, so Kyan was motivated by revenge. 
Um, he manages to gain access to the town in which Evni is imprisoned with the magical aid of the Lananche Birog. Um, he met with Evni and was struck by her beauty, uh, which made his plan of seducing her even more appealing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's there, stuck on this island in a tower by herself, so... You know, without a basis for comparison, Kyan probably looked pretty good. I think Kyan was supposed to be very fair of face as well. Yeah. Golden-haired, etc. The usual. Um, anyway, eventually she became pregnant uh, with triplets. Balor was enraged, but when his daughter has given, gave birth, he gathered up the three babies in a sheet and gave them to a servant to drown, like you would a litter of kittens, if you're that sort of person. <laughs> Um, the servant managed to drown two of the infants, but accidentally dropped the third one in the harbour. Uh, Birog rescued him and gave him to his elder half-brother, a smith, to foster. The child grew up to become Lu, the sun god of the Tuathad Danon, and then goes on to kill his grandfather Balor in the final climactic battle for Eren between Tuathad Danon and the Fulori. Yep. So again, more Lou parallels. Lou hand. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Big deal. Um, the third one is uh, Saint Barbara of Nicodemia. Yes. Now, um, this is a... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, saint Barbara was a 3rd century Eastern Orthodox saint. Um, and although written records of her life don't appear until the 7th century, um, you know, uh, we do sort of obviously... We do believe she was from the 3rd century. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so she was a very beautiful woman. She was the daughter of a rich pagan called um, Dioscorus. Is that, am I saying that right? I think so. Yeah, Dioscorus. Um, there's some hint of a father-daughter incest relationship here, which, again, seems to be a common theme. Um, although, again, it's not explicit. However, uh, Dioscorus kept his daughter locked away from the outside in a tower. Um, and Obviously, he was keeping her away from the eyes of potential suitors. Uh, Some sources say he actually wished to keep her beauty entirely for himself. Um, And some sources suggest that he wanted her to only marry in a way that suited him for political advantage. Um, Now, during her time in the tower, Barbara converted to Christianity. (laughs) What a hobby. Um, And when her father finally allowed her to receive a proposal from a suitor, through him, obviously, she refused on the basis that as a Christian, she could not knowingly marry a pagan lord. Her father had her dragged before the prefect um, uh, (laughs) Martinianus. I hate... I hate Latin names sometimes, <laughs> Martinianus, which sounds vaguely dirty. Um, um, who had her tortured? Now, during the night, Barbara's wounds mysteriously healed, leaving no trace. Um, and she held on to her Christian faith throughout. Other miracles then began to occur. Uh, Torches used to burn her would go out as soon as they were brought near her. Her dark prison was bathed in light, etc. Eventually, eventually they got tired of this, um, and she was sentenced to death by beheading. Her father himself carried out the sentence, but on the way home, he was struck by a lightning and his body consumed by flame. 
Barbara's tomb became a holy site of miracles. I mean, that's really got to be something. (laughs) The struck by lightning and literally burned. (laughs) God does not approve. (laughs) That is an epic story. Yeah. Um, So it's kind of... uh, I mean, it's kind of lit sort of littered with the usual sort of medieval storytelling motifs um that you know chris there was a a period when christian mythology was very very similar to sort of the some of the fairy tale origin stories that we've we've discussed before Mm. Um, and there wasn't a lot of difference between the two which might explain some of the some of the motifs being very similar like the potential incestuous desire if not action um, the locking away of a daughter in a tower, um, yeah. parental abuse of authority, etc., etc. And also the dedication of the mother to a particular god, um, even if that wasn't originally the Christian god. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely. some kind of relationship between her and and a god. Obviously, with Zeus um, and and Dany, um, uh, it it was a literal relationship, but also with saint barbara this is it's a it's a religious relationship yeah yeah absolutely okay so from strands of this we can start to see similarities and how they might have fed in or how they might have all been tied into what became the story rapunzel as we know it um let's just take a quick look through what the basic plot of Rapunzel is for, because even though I'm sure that most of you sort of vaguely know it, you might not remember all of the details. Yeah. So um, it starts with our fairly standard, there are, there are two people, a couple who want a child. Um, and finally, they are blessed when the wife falls pregnant. However, she becomes consumed with cravings for some kind of cultivated greens, which can be seen growing in the garden of the witch, the sorceress or the ogress, who lives next door. Again, like, what a neighbourhood. The wife begins to waste away, basically, with longing for this until her husband, fearing she will die, uh, climbs the sorceress's wall to steal the plant. Now, depending on the source, it's either parsley, um, capunala, which is a sort of lettuce, or rampling. The wife improves dramatically, but demands more, so the husband keeps stealing from the witch's garden until inevitably one day he is caught yes um he then obviously begs on his knees for the life of his wife um and the sorceress or ogress or whoever uh takes pity on him she tells him he may take the greens but in return when the child uh, depending on on the story when the child is born she will take the child essentially The, the timeline can vary and the husband in his fear and desperation or perhaps out of a sort of calculated, well, it's my wife or my child, um, mm-hmm. agrees. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, the couple obviously don't wish to honour the bargain uh, when the witch does come to collect the child, but they are forced to acquiesce. Um, and thus, the sorceress takes the child, whom she names Rapunzel, 
and she imprisons her in a tower without a door or without stairs deep in the forest, visiting her once a day to bring food and company and basically just keeping her away from the world. She gains access to the tower by telling Rapunzel to low her lower her flower uh, blah blah. She gains access to the tower by telling Rapunzel to lower her flowing long hair from the tower window so that she might climb up. Now, a few of you might have immediately noticed an issue, which is that her hair couldn't have been born that long, and thus there must have been a way in previous to that, but we're not going to get into semantics. No. <laughs> Um, anyway, a lord or prince is riding alone in the forest when he hears singing. Bewitched by the ethereal voice, he finds the tower and sees the imprisoned maiden sitting at the window. But he cannot reach her because there is no way in. He keeps returning, or rather pining away outside the tower, <laughs> until one day he sees the witch calling for Rapunzel to lower her hair. Once the witch is gone, he uses her words to get Rapunzel to lower her hair again and climbs up to her. Um, which, you know, we're, we're sort of told that Rapunzel is very surprised by this because she's never seen a man kind of thing, which, again, I think even stretches fairy tale logic at this point. <laughs> um, but he visits her often afterwards. Um, now, eventually, um, Rapunzel ends up giving the game away um, that she's been having a, a visitor when she innocently comments that her girdle is becoming too tight, indicating she is pregnant. Now, the witch, sorry, the witch, which is like a witch, um, <laughs> but sort of a bit spinier, uh, the witch is enraged to learn the truth. So she shears off Rapunzel's long hair at the nape of her neck and casts her out into the wilderness to fend for herself. Uh, the witch then waits for the prince to arrive, um, waits for him to call out, and then lowers the long plait of hair um, out of the window. However, as he's climbing up, just as he's about to reach the window, she confronts him and then unfastens the rope from the hook, throwing him from the tower. Thorn trees fortunately break his fall, um, thus saving his life, but unfortunately they scratch out his eyes in the process, leaving him blind. He then wanders into the wilderness for several years until he hears a familiar sweet voice. Making his way to a tiny cottage, he discovers Rapunzel, who has given birth to twins. She weeps over his eyes and washes the thorns free, restoring his sight. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of motives there that obviously turn up in other fairy tales. And, yeah. Um, we can't go into them too much. Um but if you just take it on, it's, it's, it is very much a wonder tale in the sense of you can't look at it too logically, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder whether large parts of that are because we have lost an incredible amount of the kind of the in-between substance um, or the greater outside narrative, which would have applied you know given us context for some of the events and some of the way that it's been framed yeah see this is where i think we can make an educated guess that more existed in oral tradition than we yeah. managed to recover or than managed to survive and it's that whole thing with stories shape-shifting in order to survive um it shape-shifted into this form which was the one that gave it the chance of surviving and mm. then we lost part of it but there is some evidence 
this is going back to the fourth source that I couldn't find enough substantiation for, but I'm going to mention it because I just think it's interesting, um, that the whole idea of basically uh, an older woman, an, and not an old woman, but an older woman, an older mm -hmm. powerful woman, imprisoning a young and beautiful woman in a tower, um, was referring to the right of winter and spring. So winter was locking spring away in a tower because winter did not want to give way before spring. Um, and it sort of taps into that entire sort of pagan mythology of, you know, um, year kings and the fact that before we got onto the, the more violent methods of choosing a year king or allowing the goddess to ascend in springtime, um, it was all about the woman's choice, the female choice. Mm -hmm. um, but we've lost an awful lot of matriarchal legend to the point where we don't actually, we can't prove emphatically that we started off as humans as a more matriarchal society mm. even though it's quite likely and there's definitely a logic to it um, but I'm not going to claim anything is definite that I can't provide significant evidence for I do think it's interesting to consider though yeah there's also you know the possibility that we're seeing maybe some kind of similar sort of story as with you know the george and the dragon etc uh, whereby a young girl was taken by um this sort of this witch this ogress um in order to be taught in the ways of you know a certain sort of rites and things like that and in getting pregnant or in dallying with an outside kind of power uh, in sort of compromising herself in that way she thus couldn't take on the role that she was being trained to to, to do essentially which is why she was kind of cast out um yeah but I mean, again we can only speculate yeah I and mean, if you read something like the golden bow or some of mm. the um robert graves the white goddess etc yeah. Um, it, there's interesting looks at some of the more ancient pagan traditions whereby um, it wasn't that the loss of virginity was considered uh, wrong or anything. It was just mm. that if you were being trained in a specific religious or spiritual direction, particularly with magic involved, as they would have seen it, um, virginity was a way of storing up power and it was only yeah. to be released at certain specific ritual times. So breaking your vows like that quite often came with the death penalty. I mean, think of how the Romans treated Vestals who broke their vows. They were buried alive. Yeah. Um, and it's not the only culture to have done something like that. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at some versions of Rapunzel from over the years. Yeah. Um, okay, the, my first example comes from the Persian epic uh, Shanameh. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but guess what? My Persian's not great. Um, <laughs> it's by the epic poet Fadawsi and was written sometime between 977 and 1010, Common Era. So it's pretty old. Uh, and it's not really so much that it's... Um, this is... It's part history, part story, part saga kind of thing. It's not really uh, Rapunzel as an early version, but I think there's enough here that you could say actually that could have informed things, particularly around, you know, as we head off towards the Mediterranean, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there have been people who've actually drawn from that uh, to then write sort of new versions of Rapunzel as well. Yeah, 
So it's about uh, Rudaba and Zal. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what Rudaba stands for now, but it's something that's clearly, you know, in the same way that Rapunzel stands for a plant. It's something like that. I, I yeah. need to check it up. Um, we know that Zal actually existed and he ruled the kingdom of what became Iraq. Um, as a teenager, he came to power, I think, when he was 17. And mm. he was trying to form um, political relationships with various other minor kingdoms, etc., around that area. And um, one of his sort of, we'll call them a frenemy, okay? <laughs> Someone he was not quite on good terms with yet. He yeah. had had a daughter of uh, surpassing beauty who was being raised in the harem because that's where you raised your daughters if you were a, you know some part of the sultanate or whatever um and the more he heard about her the more he fell in love with her without ever having set eyes on her <laughs> paradoxically um Rudaba heard a lot about Zal about how he treated the gladiators who were entertaining um, him and the others very very well about how he treated his own servants and she fell in love with his character the two of them fall in love and then you get verses and verses and verses of this great long poem where they don't meet they're just sort of pining and they've never met and then finally they manage to see each other and find in the other person everything that they wanted and expected them to be um, Zal manages to sneak around the harem which is like really really dangerous <laughs> because the eunuchs tended to just behead you first and, you know, ask questions later. Yeah. Um, uh, but she was up in a, uh, not so much a tower, but sort of in a second or third story window. And um, Zal proposed to climb up the wall to her and Rudabaz, no, you will fall to your death. And she said, no, um, if you will come to me, my love, I will lower down my hair for you to climb. And he said he could not possibly... <laughs> do that presumably because he was you know somewhat sensible despite the romantic notions <laughs> that his weight on her scalp would not be a good thing and and bade her go and get a rope instead so i'm glad that they did actually have some common sense between them yeah <laughs> um, but yeah he manages to bear her away from the harem and then they get sort of permission after the event um because her father's not terribly pleased but actually can see the advantages in having zal as a political ally um, yeah. So even though his hand's been forced, he comes to an agreement, and I think Zal has to pay a hefty bribe price. So there's a lot of history in there, but there's also kind of like a distinct fairy tale element. Yeah, I think I I, I do love the <laughs> let down your hair, <laughs> like I'll let down my hair. No, no, get a rope. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yes, infinitely more sensible. <laughs> like, oh, that's a wonderful romantic gesture. Alternatively. <laughs> <laughs> Though I guess she was also thinking, how am I supposed to get a rope without them being suspicious? Um... <laughs> what would I need a rope for? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that takes us on to basically what is recognised as the first um, written record of Rapunzel, which is Petresonella, Little Parsley, which was written down by Gian Battista Basile, our old friend, in 1634, in Naples, and he was taking it from several stories. Um, you know, in Sicily, I think it's called Little Parsley and Little Fennel. Um, it's Parsley in another place as well. Basically, there's a series of um, that sort of story around that area, 
um, that are very, very similar. And he just sort of wrote down the, the concentrated version of it, if you like. Yeah. yeah. What I really like about Patricinella is the agency of Patricinella in the story. Um, there's a few other different elements as well. So we've talked about the basic Rapunzel plot. What happens in Patricinella is that the mother sees the parsley growing fresh and green in the ogress's garden next door. Mm -hmm. And she sneaks in herself. She doesn't consult her husband. She just goes in. Um, and what you have to believe is, you have to remember, is that during medieval right up to Renaissance and even on into the sort of 1800s, it was considered very dangerous to deny a woman what she craved during pregnancy because it was thought to harm both the mother and the child and be more likely to result in infant mortality and also death in childbirth or death in pregnancy even. So um, relatives would go to great lengths to secure whatever the mother craved during pregnancy. Um, it wasn't just like a folk superstition, it was genuinely a, a real issue. And we obviously know nowadays that cravings can um, indicate like a vitamin deficiency and that's why your body is saying that you want something specific. So with all that aside, obviously she considered it, it for her, it was a matter of life and death. So she went into the ogress's garden and helped herself to parsley. And on the third occasion, the ogress catches her and makes her the bargain. Again, husband is never consulted all the way through. And the mother agrees, um, presumably because she's been frightened out of her wits by this ogress. Mm. Um, the child is born and nothing happens. It's a beautiful baby girl. And <laughs> everything's fine until the child's seven and starts going about the place by herself. And every day, Patricinella, who has been named that by her mother, Little Parsley, um, goes past the ogress's garden and the ogress calls to her, remind your mother of the promise she made. And uh, <laughs> Patricinella would go home and repeat the words to her mother and event her mother just grew more and more frightened and eventually she told Patricinella, the next time she has asked you this, you may reply to her, take her. Which is what Patricinella does. And the ogress seizes Patricinella by her hair, drags her away into the garden, <laughs> and then shortly afterwards imprisons her in a tower. And she imprisons her from the age of seven. Right. And it's really quite arbitrary why she takes this child and imprisons her in a tower. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It follows the familiar beats of the story right up until that point. Except that Patricinella is not sanguine about being imprisoned in a tower. She's not good with this. No, um, that's fair enough. She's not happy. Um, which she's singing at the window and it attracts the attention of a nearby prince from a city-state. Um, they spend several nights sort of whispering to each other and talking out the window and what have you and trying to work out a way for him to be able to come up because the ogress spends far more time with Patricinella. Um, in the end, Patricinella tells him to get her basically um, laudanum. Um, she says juice of the poppy, but it was basically laudanum. And yeah. she drugs the ogress into sleep so that she can get him up into the tower with her. <laughs> the prince doesn't so much seduce her as Patricinella kind of goes, I'm down for this. <laughs> <laughs> I I did not ask to be locked in a tower. I'm bored. I'm now sort of seventeen. I'm up for it. Um, and they carry on like that. And they might not have been caught, except and this is the bit I find really interesting. 
an old gossip from the nearby village happens to see the ogress and say, your daughter in the tower will soon be, will soon be leaving you if you're not careful and explains what Petrusnell has been up to. So everybody in that little town knew that the ogress had imprisoned a little girl in the tower and no one had said anything. <laughs> At all. Um, anyway, the, the ogress is, is furious about this, but she says, well, there's absolutely nothing that the girl can do. I'll, I'll sort out the boy somehow, um, but she can't leave. She'd never be able to leave without my three magic acorns, which I keep. And then she, <laughs> and then she very conveniently names where she keeps her magic acorns. Patricinella, who is not a dutiful child, has been listening in, and goes, "Aha! That's how I get out of the tower and how I get away from the ogress." Because the main obstacle is not getting out of the tower. They've worked out that if he turns up with some fucking rope, he she can climb out. <laughs> <laughs> the main problem is that the ogress is very powerful and they don't know how to get away from her. Right. So, with that in mind, um, when the prince next turns up, she she's kind of like, no, 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 we're not having sex tonight. What we're doing tonight is making a plan to get me out of here. <laughs> um, they steal the magic acorns and then they climb out of the tower. She's drugged the ogress as usual. And they're well on the run. The ogress wakes up and the Tresnella throws the first acorn at her. And it turns into a huge, fierce dog. Uh, the ogress throws a loaf of bread at it and the dog eats the bread instead of her. Um, starts catching up with the couple again. Petrusnella throws another magic acorn. It turns into uh, a raging lion. Um, this is where it gets a bit ridiculous. But the, the ogress uh, grabs a nearby, um, a thick, like a, a nearby great big goat. Um, you know, one of the big mountain type goats and takes its skin and wears it herself (laughs) and frightens the lion off with this by charging at it. And then the third acorn turned into a slavering wolf, which eats the ogress before she can do anything. And the couple are free. The prince takes Petrusnella to his father. His father is charmed by her beauty and by basically her gumption, (laughs) which you wouldn't think is a desirable characteristic in a female fairy tale character but was apparently and permits them to get married oh i like that yeah that's it's something really noticeable about uh, basile's work is that he's very sympathetic um to his female characters they're not just hapless maidens waiting to be rescued i mean you read his and it's very sort of like yeah i like a girl with a bit of agency and a bit of gumption <laughs> you hear that grims <laughs> The next version is Bassinet, Parsley, by Charlotte Rose de Comment de la Force, who, with a name like that, you can assume is French, um, who wrote a version in 1697. Yeah, there's a really interesting parallel between um, Mademoiselle de la Force's uh, version of Rapunzel and her her own life, which I'll get into in a minute. But there are a few differences in um, Parsinet and Petrusonella. Um, the personnet, again, parsley, is a lot more biddable in this one. She, mm. The ogress is not an ogress, she is a fairy, and the fairy makes the mother the promise that she will love and raise the child as her own. In point of fact, when you read the story, it's very much like this is a fairy whim. 
They don't really think like us. They don't think like humans. And Parsley's kind of a pet, a beloved pet, but a pet. Um, she isn't locked away until she turns 12. And um, uh, Delafosse actually says, you know, when she starts to reach puberty. So there's something in the fairy tale about, oh, God, the fairy's kind of like, oh, no, she could get pregnant. I'm going to lock her in a tower, which, you know, is obviously a logical reaction to that. Yeah. Um. And it, then it sort of goes on from there. Um, the whole thing with the prince and everything turning up and, you know, obviously allowing the <laughs> allowing the, the fairy into the tower by lowering her hair, etc. All that's very similar. Um, De La Force also says at the beginning of the story that the beautiful garden containing the parsley, the gates were left enticingly open and she suggests that the fairy has done this on purpose in order to entice the mother because right. she wants to take the child. Right. So there's a, and it even suggested that the fairy has caused the craving in the first place. Typical fairy behaviour. <laughs> Dealing children, tricking people into bargains. Yeah, basically. So anyway, um, Personette is a lot more retiring and more delicate in in her in her reaction to the prince showing up in her tower room, but he kind of persuades. Her. I mean, you read between the lines, and it's very clearly a a young teenage girl, sort of sixteen, seventeen, and a man of about twenty. Um, he knows exactly what he's doing, and she's kind of like, "Well, you're very good looking. Um, I guess so." Um, and then it's sort of again sort of reiterated a bit later on in her innocence personette does not realize that the reason that she's growing round around around the waist is because she's pregnant because she doesn't know anything about any of that um but the fairy certainly notices and is furious of course the rest of it follows very much the same until you get to the end of the story whereby the fairy is incensed that the couple have managed to reunite and they've got their two children and they're happy and she sends um, any number of troubles on them. She fills the well with poisonous snakes, for example. She turns all their, their flour and bread into stones. And it looks like they're going to you know, die of one thing or another. But they're happy in the sense that they're all together and they love each other. And love has conquered everything in the end. And the fairy is so moved by this in the end that she gives them her blessing and blesses their family and their marriage. And then conveys them to the prince's own land. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there is a little bit of I mean I you know um Delaforce did actually say that you know she was writing an original story. I think she may well have heard a folk tale or something and then wrote her own version of it, which just happened to coincide with some of Basile's mm -hmm. um version. But what's really interesting is when Delaforce wrote this, she had been banished from the court of Louis the Fourteenth for what was considered lewd and unbecoming behaviour. And she had been imprisoned in a nunnery. Um, right. She had been an incredibly witty uh, woman of fashion. Um, not really lauded to be a great beauty, but she was so charming, people didn't notice that she wasn't classically beautiful. Mm. And she'd been married and then widowed and... She took lovers as it suited her and she tried to be discreet, but she wasn't very good at it because she was one of these people who kind of blurts the truth. Right. Really, really interesting person. And in many ways, 
she was a contemporary of Charles Perrault, except that she was, she did not hold with Perrault's version of the world. Um, she thought people should be free with their affections and their bodies if they wanted to be, which obviously did not please Perrault much at all. No. <laughs> and he did not like her as a contemporary. Um, and part of the reason she kind of got as, as squashed as she did it wasn't just for the lewd carrying on because it was Louis the Fourteenth's course. Everyone was banging everybody. Yeah. Um, it was the fact that she was writing and she wouldn't stop. Right. Um, so when she wrote Personette, she was actually imprisoned in a nunnery at the time, and I think that's really interesting. The whole princess in a tower and the parallel between that and her own life. Yeah, that is very interesting. There's also almost something like in having to go through the hardships that it's there's almost a Tamlin element to it. I say Tamlin not in so much as that she has to win the, the guy over, but rather that the the fairy blesses them in the end, but only after they have demonstrated the fact that they can that their love is isn't fleeting, that it is enduring even through hardships. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's actually quite a nice story. Weirdly, despite all the horrible stuff, it's quite a nice story. There is a, a wish fulfillment romantic element. I don't know that she was ever released from the nunnery. I think she kind of made her peace with it in the end, though she never took vows. Yeah. Though obviously she was she was writing in the nunnery, so <laughs> Well yeah. <laughs> it's not like I'm really, really sorry, by the way, here's another fairy tale. <laughs> um Okay, so next we're going to hop into Germany, and we're not actually going to the Brothers Grimm yet. We are going to Franz um, Schulz. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Schulz. Schulz. Um, um, who wrote uh, Rapunzel um, in 1790. Yeah, there isn't too much to say about this, because um, <laughs> when the Brothers Grimm were adapting the original, and I say that with inverted commas, German version of Rapunzel, um, they were talking about Franz Schultz's 1790 version, um, which, you know, he was the first one to change it from parsley to Rapunzel. Rapunzel basically means lettuce. I mean, it's, it's, it's a salad green. Um, it, yeah. And the whole sort of rampion or rampling or whatever um it it is basically a salad green or it would have been a salad green at the time and relatively more difficult to cultivate ergo more expensive etc but you know something someone might have craved during the depths of winter when they wanted fresh fresh vegetables and things um and it follows the beats of the story as we know it because the brothers grim kind of took their version from franz schultz's and added a little bit more moralizing so I won't go through all the all the text, but yeah. <laughs> we are familiar with it. Yeah. Um, if we go on to Rapunzel by the Brothers Grimm, uh, which, as we've said before, they included in the House Marsh in, in the first edition, 1812, and then later on in the seventh edition, with a major change made to it in 1857, uh, because people objected to it not being suitable for children. Um, yeah, that is the version that we are most familiar with. Um, the things to remember here are that the mother is a passive character. Suddenly she's been overtaken by the husband, same as in the Franz Schultz version. So it's not the mother that makes the bargain, it's the father. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it because he must save his wife's life. So instead of going, yeah, it's an unequal fairy bargain type thing, 
it's kind of like, well, he was trying to save his wife, so good on him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's when she was... It can vary, really, depending, but uh, Rapunzel isn't taken by the... I think it's a sorceress or witch by this point. Mm. Um, she's taken when she... I th- she's not taken as a baby, I don't think. I think she's taken when she's seven. I could be wrong on this one. But again, not taken immediately. Taken when she's about seven or so. Um, imprisoned in a tower, as usual. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, but what gives her away after her dalliance with the prince is the fact that she said she happens to innocently comment that her girdle is growing too tight um, which the sorceress who is actually named as gothel in the brothers Grimm version which i thought was interesting i thought that was a disney affectation but it isn't um immediately realizes that means she's pregnant and um (laughs) you know while you've got basile who isn't is pretty bawdy about the fact that the prince and um Tresanella are getting down as in yeah that's what they're doing every night they're not talking they're, they're doing they're doing the do <laughs> kind of thing. um the brothers grim very sort of like coy about the whole thing and that's their mention that the girdle's getting tight so you're supposed to yeah. infer it um in the 1857 version because so many people complained about that i mean what they thought the prince and rapunzel were doing in the tower all that time otherwise poetry Poetry, yes, obviously poetry reading. Um, they changed it to Rapunzel thoughtlessly asking Gothel why she was so heavy to pull up and the prince was so light. So they made wow. her. They made her they even dumber. Her into an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> basically. <laughs> uh, the other thing which is quite interesting is that in the later Brothers Grimm version, um, they've obviously noticed the major plot hole, which is the prince doesn't ever turn up with a piece of fucking rope. <laughs> and they have uh, Rapunzel saying I would love to go away with you and be your wife etc bring me a skein of silk every time you visit me and I shall weave it into a ladder like why she doesn't just say bring me an entire rope or a rope ladder you know can you bring me a platoon of your father's men at arms and we'll sort this situation out (sighs) yeah I mean, it's, and again, it, there's also this kind of this implication that maybe, you know, just with earlier versions where escape actually requires some sort of action on her part because there is sorcery involved. It's yeah. not just, you know, so maybe she is the one she has to weave her own magic in order to escape or, um, you know, they need to have certain magics, etc. You know, um, and perhaps again, where it's those kind of those little details and stuff like that would have been recognisable within the context of a certain period but have been lost in later translations. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, um, finally, we get to Prunella, um, which is Andrew Lang's version um, in the Red Fairy book uh, in 1890. So Andrew Lang obviously um, has famously translated many, many, many fairy tales into English um, and it was his translations which actually introduced a lot of uh, the Victorian English to the Brothers Grimm and other sort of fairy tales from the continent. Yeah definitely. Um, Andrew Lang did not like the story of Rapunzel. He disliked it so much he completely changed it. Yeah. (laughs) There's no fairy bargain at the beginning. There's no mother or 
father um, offering their firstborn child in exchange for a plant. He didn't like that idea at all. Yeah, that would go very much against the whole idea of, uh, you know... You know, sacred innocence of children, etc., etc., Victorians. Yeah. Um, anyway, the little girl is around seven or eight years old, and she's on her way to school, and there is a beautiful plum tree which is overgrowing the wall of a witch's garden. And every day she passes it, she takes one of the plums from the, the, the branch that's overhanging the wall and takes it to school with her to eat. Um, now, the witch who lives in the garden realises that some of the plums are going missing, so she lies in wait and she finally catches Prunella um, and, you know, accuses her of being a thief. And Prunella sort of is very upset and says she didn't know she was doing anything wrong because... They were hanging over the side of the road. They weren't actually in the witch's garden. She hasn't gone inside. Um, and the witch says, you must come into my house and I will keep you there until I have deemed you you have worked off your punishment. So kind of like an indentured servant. Um, she shuts the girl away in the house and nobody sees her again. Uh, although it is commented on in the story that people know that the girl is imprisoned by a witch and nobody's doing anything about it. So there you go again. Um, Anyway, it's useless neighbourhoods. Useless neighbourhoods are really sort of like, oh yeah, there's there's always one imprisoned child oh, somewhere. Mabel's got another one. <laughs> um, the girl grows up to be very, very beautiful with long golden hair. And that is all you hear about her hair for like the entire story at this point. Because apparently he thought lowering hair out of windows was also a bit ridiculous. Um, instead of this softening the witch's heart this is literally how andrew Lang puts it it makes her inflamed with jealousy instead and she determines that she's going to kill the young woman um, and she just basically sets prunella a series of impossible tasks um, which i won't go into you can easily find the text if you want to read it but i'm not gonna like do a 20 minute <laughs> 20 minute breakdown of prunella um basically prunella gets Prunella fails at each task, sits down, has a bit of a cry. The witch's son, who we've never mentioned until this point and who she didn't know existed, uh, <laughs> turns up and says, well, if I do this, will you give me a kiss? And she says, no, very, very staid Victorian gentlewoman kind of thing. Um, and so he does it for her anyway. Uh, and she thwarts the witch at each turn, and then there's a, a great bit where the witch sends her off to her much crueler sister, who's likely to eat the girl. Um, but again, her son turns up and says, well, if I if I tell you what to do, will you give me a kiss? No, of course I won't. How dare you even suggest it, you, you cad kind of thing. <laughs> um, so he's like, well... I love you more than I love myself, so this is what you do. I actually felt quite sorry for the witch's son by the end of the story. It's like, for God's sake, all, everything he's done is worth one kiss, seriously. Or, you know, make him a cup of tea, do something. <laughs> um, give him a thimble. Yeah. Maybe, maybe talk to him. I don't know. He seems like a nice guy. Um, and she escapes from that witch's house. She goes back to the original witch. Um... This girl has no gumption. She is a Victorian flower, very definitely. Um, mm -hmm. The witch is very surprised to see her back, not having been eaten by her cannibalistic sister, <laughs> and isn't very happy, and sets her one more impossible task. Um, what happens in the end is that this, the witch who has her said, well, if you can't do this one, I shall eat you up. 
So we're back to good old cannibalism there. Um, and there's a point where the witch's son is trying to force her hand by hesitating slightly before giving her the answer. Um, but Prunella cries out that she can hear the witch coming for her. And mm -hmm. in fear for Prunella's life, the witch's son runs up the stairs and finds his mother about to enter the girl's chamber, grapples with her and ends up accidentally pushing her down the stairs and killing her. At which point Prunella's kind of like, oh, you are a good guy and then marries him. Ah, because nothing says good guy quite like murder. No. So you're willing to marry your... Marry? <laughs> Freudian. You're willing to murder your mother for me. Okay, yeah. We're good to go. So there we go. That's a selection of Rapunzel versions. And it's really interesting to me how you can go from someone who's got so much personality and agency in Petrusinella to basically the wallflower that you get in Prunella. Yeah. It's... So every time it passed through the hands of yet another man, somebody, somebody yeah. took more away. It was like the Christian, you know, <laughs> like the Christianization just squeezed, squeezed all of the agency out. Yeah. Um, but regardless, I mean, there is some just some fantastic material there. I mean, even the Andrew Lang version, I think it's it's kind of interesting, and it would be sort of fun if if someone rewrote it to give her a tiny little bit more, you know, agency and stuff like that, there's some good basis there. The potential for a good romance as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so obviously there are other versions as well and we, we don't have time to sort of go into all of them, but uh, let's have a little look at what the sort of the general and reoccurring themes are throughout um, these versions and throughout sort of what we understand as the Rapunzel story. Yeah. So, so oh, go on. No, no, no. Um, okay, well, I think one of the major ones is the protection or overprotection of a young woman. Um, it wouldn't necessarily have been completely, completely off the wall to sort of lock up your daughter until you actually formed a marriage contract for her at some points in history. It might be considered yeah. a little overbearing, but it wouldn't have been... Like, if you try to do that now, then that's child abuse, basically. Yeah. Um, whereas if you did that sort of uh, 600 years ago, 800 years ago, um, that was more kind of like, wow, you've... <laughs> that, that's a slightly possessive father or mother figure isn't it it's not necessarily child abuse so there's the context of the times but i do think that does make a great certainly in the latter versions that makes a great metaphor for um not wanting your child to grow up and leave you and become an adult yeah yeah i completely agree and also you know being in total denial of of the fact that your child is actually no longer a child but a young you know a young woman or a a young man i guess in some cases yeah yeah absolutely um there's also the abuse of a parental figure so you've got um you know treating someone like they're a pet i mean even if you're a fairy or an ogress or something that sort of i mean i think the reason they made um uh, that that particular character an ogress or a, a fairy was because 
on some level everybody knows that, that it's something inhuman to take another human being and treat them as if they're basically a pet and you own them and that yeah. they don't have any thoughts or feelings of their own yeah um and i think it's also rather telling that in all of these versions it's not the the birth parents who are treating their child in this way uh sort of when you get to the sort of the fairy tale versions whereas in sort of a lot of the original myths and things like that where we see similar elements it is the birth parents who yeah. are mistreating um the children um i mean it, it, we certainly know that it's obviously a very common thing with a lot of the um, sort of the fairy tale writers with Perrault and with the Grimm's and stuff like that to shift narratives so that it would be a stepmother or a mother-in-law rather than an actual mother because yeah there was this whole we can't possibly have um, people who are related by birth committing or wishing to commit such atrocities yeah um, the next is one that a lot of people might overlook but there are you know themes about the dangers and the responsibilities of pregnancy yeah i mean certainly until you get to prunella you've got two sets of pregnancy you've got the original couple who longed for a child and are they you know are they tricked into it are they just following common folk wisdom are, are they doing them <laughs> basically the, uh, the the prenatal advice of the time, as in you must succumb to these cravings, otherwise your child might die. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think it's a bit noticeable in Petrosanella where the, the girl's seven and her mother said, her mother doesn't even go and face the ogress herself. She tells the child to tell the ogress, take her. Yeah. That's disturbing. Really, I mean, we don't know that she didn't then have many other children. Chances are she probably did. But at that point, it's a bit. It's like you went through all this to have this child and you're you're very frightened of this thing coming to pass and you can't even face it yourself. There's 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 something of the absent mother going on there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um and of course, you know, it's it, there's also this kind of reminder that in the case of, you know, with both with both women, it wasn't, you know, there's not necessarily a choice with regards to them being pregnant. Yeah. But they are the ones who face the consequences of it. And particularly in the earlier versions, they bear the full brunt of it. The, the sort of the male characters, the father is not even there. The The woman is the one who has to face the ogress. She is the one who has to make the bargain. Her daughter is the one who has to pay, you know, the price and stuff like that. There is no, you know, there is no responsibility placed on any of the male figures in the story. Yeah. Yeah, this is very much a, a woman's tale, isn't it? It is, in yeah. In that respect. Um, yeah, there's also the dangers of preserving a state of innocence, or we might say ignorance. Yeah, this is something I think is actually one of the reasons why Rapunzel remains an everlasting story even now, even if people don't necessarily make this connection, is that it does warn us about the sort of the foolish notions of trying to, you know, trick biology essentially and the fact is that the that a large amount of people in the world will feel sexual attraction um, some people don't and that's fair enough but a large amount of people do 
And assuming that by not telling your child things or by kind of withholding things you are maintaining their innocence and protecting them um you are actually putting them in an even more dangerous position um and you've got to ask would rapunzel have had sex if she had actually known where it was going to lead what it would mean if she'd actually had a notion of what pregnancy was and what the risks associated with it were um and also you know the social risks too which is another thing to consider um but because she didn't have any of this context all she knew was that she liked the look of this guy um and something pleasant seemed to be happening whenever he arrived you know whenever he came um and of course that there was no open communication between the parental figure obviously in this case because that was a kidnapper but there was no yeah there is that <laughs> yeah there, there was no communication because it was not something which had ever been talked about and was therefore something which would you know rapunzel would feel like this would need to be kept secret um and not to go sort of too deep but this is the similar thing happens when children end up getting abused and not just children you know uh teenagers and, and stuff like that who end up getting abused um or end up in bad sort of relationships and things like that um and they can't talk to anyone about it because they don't first of all really have the the language the experience to to do that but also because they ne don't necessarily know what they should expect and they don't necessarily have anyone they trust or who they feel they can talk to who's actually not going to judge them or get angry at them or throw them out, etc. Yeah, I mean, the whole um, the witch, sorceress, ogress, whoever, discovering that uh, Rapunzel is pregnant and cutting her hair and throwing her out to fend for herself in the wilderness. It, you know, I can... I can think of a couple of people who got pregnant as teenagers and their parents immediately kicked them out. I mean, why that's a solution? Yeah. It, it's obviously not a solution. It, it's a solution in the sense of, well, you're distancing yourself from the shame they've brought on your family, which seems like a very Victorian notion. But that was still happening in the 70s and 80s and in some cases in the 90s as well. It may still but, be happening now. I mean, it's now. still happening now, yeah. Yeah. Um, the next, of course, um, is, you know, uh, themes of possession, uh, possession and ownership by a parental figure, um, which kind of ties in with the protection or the overprotection sort yeah. of element as well. Um, but yeah, this idea that you own your child. Um, no, you don't. You have responsibility for your child. They are part of your family. Um, you don't own them. Yeah, it's the whole you people are not pets thing. Yeah. To be honest, pets are still, you know, pets have got their own agency, their own thoughts and feelings, etc. And you, in some ways you've got a greater degree of responsibility. So a person is not an object. So you can't put yeah. it somewhere and expect it to be there um, to be a source of delight for you. Yeah, and not to change yeah. either. Okay, there's the fairy bargain aspect where, whereby it seems very unequal that a child is being exchanged for a plant. Um, but that mm. turns up in a lot of fairy tales. I mean, technically, uh, Beauty and Beauty and the Beast exchange for a rose. Um, and 
you know, Jack exchanging a cow for magic beans, not that he knows their magic, in um, Jack and the Beanstalk. And there's, there's loads of fairy tales where a person gets exchanged for a plant. Um, but it does seem like quite an unequal bargain, doesn't it? Other than, other than if you look at the whole, well, the wife might genuinely die if she doesn't satisfy her cravings kind of thing. Yeah, if it's not actually to do with the plant, but actually what it symbolises yeah. as well, um, which is that it symbolises the saving of a life and therefore will cost a life. It's interesting in the early versions that the plant is parsley, not lettuce. Um, yes. Because parsley is the herb of death. Um, which was used for, you know, you didn't eat it, you didn't grow it in the house, and you it was used in, to make a wash for, um, you know, preparing corpses for burial. It was actually considered quite bad luck to eat it, so the fact that yeah. she was craving the herb of death is kind of like yet another layer. Yeah. It's also um, kind of adds into this potential sort of more pagan element to it, which um, I'll talk about in a little bit as well when we talk about the hair, um, which is that what if actually it's because the plant is magic? Yeah. Um, and we get this idea that therefore Rapunzel, having been, you know, sort of conceived whilst her mother ate this plant, might very well have had some kind of power attached to her. Um but yeah, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the next is obviously the ability to break free from the circumstances which imprison you. This is obviously a pretty clear metaphor for surviving parental abuse and dealing with it as an adult. Um, yeah, I mean, you can apply that metaphor to various different circumstances in life because you don't have control over everything that will ever happen to you. Um, yeah. But learning to find your way out, your your rope of hair, if you like, is yeah. an important part of uh, moving from child to adulthood. Um, I think maybe that might be one of the themes that makes Rapunzel an enduring story, because there's yeah. escape from the tower. And on some level, I think that resonates with most people in the idea that at some point we're all going to feel trapped by something. Um, yeah. And well, also the fact that no one else can remove you from that you've kind of either got to, you you've got to remove yourself or you've got to be sort of pushed out from within it yeah um which yeah is an interesting idea um so i just wanted to sort of very quickly talk about the hair because the long hair and the cutting of hair is obviously a, a great metaphor for loss of virtue um, but historically as well, in a lot of sort of pagan traditions, and even in the Abrahamic religion, there has been this kind of, this notion of hair holding power. Yeah. And therefore the cutting of hair actually being sort of the loss of power. Um, you know, in the case of Samson, obviously, he loses his strength when he cuts his hair. Um, he loses his vitality, but you also get in a lot of sort of the sort of Celtic stories and stuff like that, the idea of the sort of the soul residing within the hair as well. So there's almost, again, if we look back at it in terms of the fact that this was a young woman who was training to be some kind of priestess, training to also be some kind of sorceress, um, the cutting of the hair was basically also a sort of a way of, of cutting her from that path because she had already, um, uh, you know actually sort of what's what's the term i'm looking for 
scuppered her chances with it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's an element of that. I mean, we've done an entire episode on hair, so if that interests people, dig back into our archives, because there's a lot of interesting folklore about hair. There really is. But yeah. The last one, of course, is uh, very prevalent, particularly in the later versions, but that is the heartwarming Love Conquers All. Yeah, um, I can see it. I'm squinting a bit because I never find the prince character at all convincing. No, with the I possible find very suspect. <laughs> yeah, with the possible exception of Patricia probably because she's driving that railroad. You know, she's kind of like, okay, but if I can get him up here, I can have some fun, and then at least my life is not just bound by these four walls. Um, and it's the fact that she makes the choices all the way through, and he's her willing accomplice. I find him more convincing in that role. Probably because he's yeah. never really a fleshed out character at all. He just turns up to fall in love with her. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, though I do like sort of the sort of the later, you know, versions where they're living together and they're living through hardship, but he could at any point just desert her and go back to his kingdom. And he doesn't. No. You know, he stays with her and, and her children and, and he loves her. And so I, I kind of like that version. Yeah. Okay, let's look at a few modern retellings. I've only put a few down, but I think there are probably dozens more than this. Yeah. So we'll start with the obvious one, which is Disney's Tangled. Um, and I've got to admit, I think this is one of my favourite adaptations of Rapunzel. Yeah, it's a great adaptation of the fairy tale. Um, it's not a favourite Disney film for me personally, but I do love the way they've really delved into the theme of you know a parental figure being abusive mm -hmm. um and what that can actually do to you and what you've then got to overcome because she's got trials and things to overcome within herself in order to get what she wants yeah um out of life yeah i completely agree and what's interesting to me as well is the fact that in a lot of sort of fairy tales and stuff like that you kind of you sort of go, why Why is anyone putting up with this sort of behaviour? You know, why, why would they agree to sort of be treated in this way? And Tangled actually goes a long way into showing sort of some of the techniques that abusive parents use to control their kids. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it's believable. You can understand why Rapunzel loves Mother Gothel. Um, yeah, and you know why she struggles so much, and and all of that jazz. So it's it's kind of it's really interesting. Um, and they've kind of given her a bit more of the Petrasanella type gumption, haven't they? They have, yeah. Um, and they've also obviously then lent into some of those potential kind of pagan origins of actually saying there is actually magic involved, and there's and the hair is magical too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's a it's a fun film, and that you know it's not a prince, but um, Eugene's actually a great character. He is. Yeah, um, I really do like him. Um, and again, there's just this great sense of agency with Rapunzel as well. Yeah, which is lovely. Um, my other example. I mean, I've talked about some of the other Lunar Chronicles by Marissa Meyer mm. in various other fairy tale and focus episodes. Uh, but the Rapunzel one, which is the third book in the quartet, is Cress. And Cress is, 
is short for crescent moon, which sounds like, a, again, a very hippie-ish sort of name. If she's not named after a plant, she's named after a moon phase. That's, <laughs> that's weird. Um, basically, the setup is that this is a future Earth. Um, there's something like three or four big governments on Earth now, so huge blocks of land are, are all controlled by various different people. And generally, there's, there's peace amongst these people. The, the people we're not getting on with quite so well are the Lunars, who uh, come from the Lunar Colony on the Moon. Um, and we've been apart from them long enough that they, they're slightly different. Uh, they've developed some kind of psychic abilities whereby they can delve into your mind and control your behaviour, and you can't do anything about it even if you know what's happening. Right. Um, they can also distort what you see. So they create this glamour type magnetic field around them and they can change what you look like. Um, of the lunar colony people, uh, there are also those who are shells and the shells are the ones who are born without any psychic aptitude at all. And generally speaking, um, the lunar royal family, as it stands, does not like shells because they can see directly through the glamour. Right. Um, so if you think of the Wicked Queen from Snow White putting out the glamour that makes her the most beautiful woman in the world, and or, or universe even, hating the fact that there are people alive who can just see through their glamour and say, no, you're not. Yeah. So what she does is she has the shell children all gathered up by her thaumaturges, who, you know, basically her religious leaders, and they're supposed to be murdered. But instead of being murdered, one thaumaturge finds a use for them and, you know, squirrels them away in sort of like a, a satellite space orphanage type thing. Mm -hmm. um, one of them, Cress, who is taken away from her family at a very young age, um, has this weird sort of Mother Gothel Rapunzel type relationship with one of the thaumaturges. And then the thaumaturge discovers that she's a brilliant, brilliant programmer. She's just a natural when it comes to speaking to computers. So he imprisons her in a, a satellite by herself. Um, and she and what she's supposed to be doing is spying on the royal courts on Earth. Right. Um, and she has to find her way around sort of to hack, basically to hack into systems and things. And she's only 16 and she's just there and she's been imprisoned in a satellite since she was about 12. Um, and it just, it follows the main beats of Rapunzel after that in many ways, not with the pregnancy or anything, but in the sense of um, <laughs> space space rogue <laughs> Captain Thorne accidentally docks his ship at the satellite and ends up rescuing her by default. <laughs> and it, it all goes hilariously wrong. It's a really, really interesting version of the story. I really enjoyed it. And because the you have the four fairy tales that all, you know, um, Cinderella, Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel and Snow White all sort of fitting together in these four books and they all turn up in each other's books. It works really well in a world building level. That's really cool. Yeah. So I do enjoy the Lunar Chronicles. They are very, very cool. Um, my final example is Bitter Greens by Kate Forsyth, which is really interesting and it's told in like a on a on three timelines almost you've got one timeline which is set during the renaissance which is kind of literally the actual rapunzel story mm -hmm. type um but it's told from the perspective of of 
the supposed sorceress, who is actually a sorceress, but you get to find out why she wanted to imprison a young girl in a tower and just how many times she's done it before. And then you've got um, Madame Mademoiselle de la Force's perspective. It's literally written from her perspective as well as she navigates the court of uh, Louis the Fourteenth, And you find out all sorts of interesting stuff about her. And then there's a third timeline as well. Um, it's quite an intricate, slightly more literary type story. Um, really engrossing and with some very, very dark bits as well. Um, but it is a really, really good not just a straight Rapunzel retelling, but a comparative Rapunzel story for anybody who suddenly finds their agency completely taken away from them and trapped. Okay, that sounds really interesting. So, uh, yes, that would be a recommendation for me. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm definitely going <laughs> to... I've got so many more things to add to my uh, TV red list. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, I do do that. <laughs> Never apologise. Um... Well, we've come to the end of the episode. Obviously, we've not been—we've only been able to look sort of at a very surface level at Rapunzel, but um, I'm sure you'll agree that it is a really interesting fairy tale, um, and one which I think everyone knows, but sometimes gets overlooked. Um, but there's a lot of potential there. Um, we'd love to also hear what sort of some of your favourite Rapunzel retellings are um, and whether you think that we've kind of missed any sort of valuable points or themes um, from this fairy tale. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, I've got one for you. Um, so uh, Jules obviously introduced me to Half a Soul by Olivia Atwater uh, last year which was a recommendation um, and as part of the sort of the series set in the same world there is actually a kind of an, a, a sequel sort of adjacent novel that she's written she's actually written two of them um, but the one I'm going to be recommending today is 10,000 Stitches by Olivia Atwater so it's sent it's set after the events of Half a Soul. Um, you don't have to have read Half a Soul, but it is sort of recommended really that you do just to really kind of get the most out of it. Um, and the story basically follows um, a young servant who falls in love with one of the the sort of the the sons in the household that she works with. Um, and she ends up making uh, an ill-advised deal with a fairy lord uh, where essentially he will kind of set her up so that the pair of them can be married and in exchange she must embroider him this beautiful coat. Um, and shenanigans ensue, of course, <laughs> uh, because even though um, uh lord blackthorn um is doing his absolute best like he actually seems to really want to sort of help her he is a fairy and doesn't quite understand how some things work um so he hinders as much as he helps and one of the things that i really like about it is that there is this kind of this discussion about classism um, and how sort of the actions of few can have dire consequences on many who are often overlooked so i really really enjoyed it it's got a sort of a lovely romance in it too which is adorable 
Um, and it's a, a wonderful sort of uh, sequel read to Half a Soul. So do check it out. I love the fact that I I um, I do my usual thing where I'm like, Madeline, you've got to read this. And I pester her about something and then she reads it. And then I turn around and she's reading all the other books and I haven't caught up yet. <laughs> Um, it's absolutely on my TBR for February. I've got a few arcs I do need to kind of get on top of right. first, but then I will absolutely be reading it. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers, or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>